Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While critics have attacked the media's right to have an opinion about its own self-interest and future, Diane Francis from the Financial Post will talk to us about that. NATO allies have offered security assurances for Ukraine on the path to membership. What's going to happen? Well, Oliver Brown, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Muck School of Global Affairs will join us to talk about that. And what does the latest Bank of Canada interest rate hike mean for you? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ongoing discussions, of course, about what's happening with uh, Facebook and Google and uh, the media in this country. The, the debate continues, of course. The Canadian legislation has been passed. Uh, now there's some talk that they may need to amend some of it because uh, both Google and uh, Facebook suggest that the Canadian uh, legislation is uh, what they call an overreach. So where are we on this, and, and what is the, the future of this relationship, such as it is, between uh, social media platforms and the media? Joining us to talk about this is Diane Francis, editor-at-large at the National Post. Uh, Diane, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Glad to be here. Uh, interesting piece that you wrote that uh, that was in the uh, the post just a, a day or so ago about this and and the pushback that's going on here and it, I I don't know how you're hearing this but the feedback I'm getting from an awful lot of listeners is we don't know who's right and who's wrong and who's BSing here and who's on the right side of this thing. Uh, your your article I think adds some clarity to to, to the discussion and the debate here. Uh, and and the word that I keep hearing from Maafalite, and you've used it a couple of times here, is bullying, uh, which I think is a pretty apt description of what uh, both Google and Facebook are trying to do here. Yeah, I, th I think uh, if I could uh, give people a quick uh, context, uh, sure. what we're seeing in Canada with this piece of legislation is sort of shutting the, the, the barn door after most of the horses have bolted already. This is a catch-up that's decades long in the making. Uh, when social media first began, to pirate and, and be parasitic in terms of using other people's intellectual property for their own advertising gain. Uh, we were slow off the mark. And the only one who sort of saw it 20 years ago was Rupert Murdoch. He tried to organize the world's newspapers and said, look, our content is intellectual property. It belongs to us. They should pay a royalty or get our permission or we should get part of whatever they make using our intellectual property. So, he couldn't get, you know, he couldn't corral the world's newspaper editors, most of whom didn't understand what this was going to mean to them down the road. And nothing ever happened. He sued and then he just dropped it. Now, Australia, not surprisingly, because he's Australian, he finally convinced the Australian government a couple of years ago to come up with legislation. And the Canadian version of that Australian legislation is Bill C-18, which is what we're now dealing with. And this is what Facebook and Google are pushing back on. And they're pushing back on it, which is kind of surprising uh, because, you know, they accepted it in Australia and they, they didn't like it at first. Facebook pulled a stunt. He, they, they pulled the pin on all internet connections for a day in the whole country of Australia to news sites. But, you know, the pushback was enormous and they've exceeded. And the result of it is there are now job increases in the journalism uh, area, small and medium large newspapers and broadcasters in Australia. The, the thing is healthy again. They have some ad revenues. And what basically they did was they agreed upon a formula with the media in Australia that the government pushed and insisted on that has yielded a payment of $200 million Australian scattered proportionately to the media that they parasite from. And so that's what C18 is aiming to do. It's a catch up. And so some people say, well, 
isn't it what what's what's why are they doing this now what is government intervening no it's not the government intervening um it's the media that's dying and the closures and the job losses and so on have been horrific in canada as they are in the us as they are all over the world the australians are the first ones to come up with decent legislation that forms that forces these parasitic companies to share revenues that they are getting because they're using our intellectual property. The Europeans have done some of this. The Americans have just tabled some legislation to do what Australia has done and what Canada is trying to do. That's uh, the background. You mentioned that uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar from uh, the states, Minnesota, I believe it is, uh, is one of the advocates for this. I watched her do a TV interview about this the other day. Uh, and, and the U.S. is watching what's happening here. I mean, we're almost like a test case. I know this has already happened in Australia, uh, but the fact that, that, that Google and, and Facebook have pushed back against the Canadian law, I think, is is, is uh, probably concerned an awful lot of people to say, hey, maybe this isn't going to be so hard. Are they going to fight this every time a country tries to introduce legislation like this? Listen, as I say, you know, I think that maybe there's some overreach in the Canadian legislation. It seems like their definition of who they have to pay money to is pretty open-ended. Might even include NGOs in Quebec that aren't really media companies. Who knows? That's a matter of them fixing it. But the point is that this has to happen because the media is disappearing, the traditional media. And I know people don't think that's important, but it is important. And so it's it's important to a democracy. And it's not about, you know, newspapers trying to bully the tech guys. It's the other way around. But it seems sudden. And there has to be government intervention because the tech guys have been abusive and they've been bullies. They control the advertising, the access to the advertising digital market. They've shut us out of that. So, you know, at every turn and at, at the same time, they're stealing our intellectual property and not paying us a copyright fee. And we have no ability to sue for that because they are indemnified from liability because they're American based silicone giants. And so, you know, this is this is going to happen. It's got to happen. It's just that it's odd that Facebook and Google both caved into Australia it, without a problem. And for some reason, they're putting they're playing harder ball with Canada, maybe because the legislation should change a little bit, maybe because they're worried because once we get it, the Americans will get it. And that's that's the big money. And so, you know, there is no denying that the the newspaper business and the broadcasting business have been suffering greatly, uh, with the exception of the taxpayer-supported CBC, which, by the way, in my opinion, should be shut down. That's a different well, story. Well, you talk... Yeah, I know this. Well, yeah, that's as you mentioned in the piece. That's a whole different argument that uh, that still has to be had in there in this country. Uh, but when you say that, you know, the two hundred and fifty Canadian newspapers are shut down right now, only seventy five dailies and a few hundred weeklies uh, remain in situations like this. Uh, the inequity here is 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 marked, and, and I think most people seem to understand that. Are you, are you surprised, though, Diane, about the pushback that, that some people are giving this? I mean, you mentioned a couple of the, the podcasters that have basically said that, well, this is just the government caving into to the, to the newspaper and journalistic industry. Basically, uh, if this happens and if this compensation is forthcoming, as it happened in Australia, uh, that that's just going to make us uh, pawns for the government. I, I think they call it a propagandist for the government. I, I, I take exception to that that characterization uh, by a couple of these people. I mean, I think it's it's patently unfair and, and basically not true. 
Yeah, I think what you've got to realize, too, is that, you know, the these tech companies have enormous lobbying reach. They pay a lot of people, professional people, to generate anti-legislation anti, uh, arguments. First of all, they'll say, oh, well, these are just newspapers who, who you know, are selfish and they just want to line their own pockets with, with money that they don't deserve. That's one argument that a couple of these pundits supposedly have pushed back on. That's not the case. Uh, we're, we're looking we're, we're looking after our own self-interest, of course, but who doesn't? That's like criticizing somebody for uh, suing the police because they didn't make a proper arrest. Come on, give me a break. And other the other argument is, oh, this is the, the, the government, you know, intervening in freedom of expression. That's rubbish. In fact, the government is not in, in, involved after this legislation happens. It won't be involved in paying direct subsidies out of tax dollars, except to the bloody CBC, because these tech companies will have to be assessed and make a deal with the media, the private media. And so the government is there to say, you have to make a deal with the private media. This is what Australia did. And by the way, if you balk at it and give them a hard time because they're little and you're gigantic, um, we're going to force arbitration on, on your negotiations. Not, not you know, not dictate the, the results of the arbitration, but just impose it. And so this is a... a, a the right thing for the Canadian government to do. They've dawdled. It's been years. I mean, Australia's already had this for two years and the Europeans have done things. Uh, but, you know, better late than never. And I don't think the tech bullies have a, have a leg to stand on. I got about 30 seconds left here. Who's going to blink first here? Oh, the tech guys will. I mean, look, you're dealing with the government of Canada. And if more people like me start to point out the fact that this is not about government dictating what we're going to read and this is not about you know the tech guys being victims this is about you know protecting the fact that we all as canadians in a democracy i mean these little papers tell us about bake sales they tell us what city council has done what road repairs i mean this is this is the lifeblood of what we need and people are not going to gather that information for people to use or vote on or make business decisions or housing decisions on for free we have to be paid. And that's, that's you want to call it journalism? Fine. That's what it is. Uh, the article is called uh, Google, Facebook, and the Apologist for Big Tech Bully Tactics. Uh, you can check it out on the National or the Financial Post webpage, actually. Diane, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. Diane Francis, editor-at-large with the National Post. Uh, and, and again, this is an ongoing debate and discussion. And I, I hope Diane's absolutely right that the tech guys are going to uh, eventually cave into this, as they did in Australia. Which is why I think a lot of people are surprised at the reaction that uh, that these guys want to push back because they actually said to to the Australian government, mind you, the Australian government had to really draw a line in the sand and said, "Here's what's going to happen if you don't do this." Uh, but you would have thought that they would have said, "Look, at, well, you lost that battle. We're not going to win the one in Canada either." Um, you know, they're they're trying to gain some support here, but there's a basic argument here that Diane puts forth in her article that we've talked about uh, on a number of different occasions, uh, and it's it's all about fairness. And it's not, hey, we want a bigger piece of the pie. They're taking content that is produced by newspapers and radio stations and television stations and posting it, and then they're selling it. As, and, and that's how they generate their advertising dollars. But it's not their product. It's the product of that newspaper or that radio station that they're simply taking. And and like I said on the program yesterday, when we were talking with, uh, with Gina Lawrence from uh, Fanshawe College, who's the head of the, uh, the broadcasting and journalistic school there. Uh, to a certain extent, I guess some of the, the, the media outlets, newspapers and radio stations, etc., are, are guilty 
right now maybe a little naivety here because for years and years uh, you know we've been encouraging it to go to the go to this page go to here uh and and feeding them information like this uh not realizing maybe the extent that the the damage was actually being caused here where the revenue started to flow to the media uh, not to the media outlets rather but to the social media platforms to Facebook and Google uh they're benefiting from it and they're simply saying, well, too bad, so sad. Yeah, we will continue to take your content, and we will continue to post it, and we'll make money by selling it, and we're not going to share that with you. So advertiser ABC is, instead of advertising with that newspaper, as they usually did, is now simply posting their, their ads on, on one of those social media platforms, and, uh, and there's the inequity. And it is problematic. And local news is a big part of this. And, you know, because we, we still need to be informed. We talk about this on the program constantly about what's going on in the world. And you're, you know, a taxpayer, you're a voter, and you need to be informed about stuff like that. And, and the problem with the social media platforms is they can be very selective about what they post and don't post. And when newspapers shut down, and the numbers there are staggering, uh, that over 250 newspapers have already shut down, uh, that information that you want and need and are used to getting is not going to be available anymore. So the, the legislation is not perfect. I get that. And there may well be some overreach here. Maybe they were far too inclusive in the legislation. But instead of simply saying, okay, we're going to shut out all these sites and we're not going to give you access to any news platforms anymore on Facebook or on Google, sit down at the table. Where's, where's the discussion here? Where's, the, where's the, the two sides getting together and saying, okay, you know what? We think this part of the, the legislation is unfair. Well, talk about it. Maybe there's some middle ground. As a matter of fact, I will guarantee that there is some middle ground to try to fix this. And, and let's face it, Facebook and Google are probably never going to be 100% happy with the legislation because they right now they've got the best of both worlds. But it's a monopoly. But as... as one of the U.S. senators uh, commented the other day when they were talking about the legislation that they're trying to craft right now is, yeah, Google and Facebook have changed the world, but that doesn't give them the right to rule the world. And that's what they seem to be wanting to do here. So this is a discussion that's not going to stop anytime soon. And it's extremely important. And, and Canada is not alone in this. Australia has done this. The United States, the U.K., and other jurisdictions are looking at what's going on here. And they're in the process of drafting their own legislation on this. Because this, this is a, a wrong that needs to be righted. And whether it's going to start here or in Australia or anyplace else, uh, it's a battle that we just eventually have to win. And and you know what? <laughs> don't, don't cry poor here. Facebook and Google are going to do just fine out of this, as they always will. Uh, but there's got to be some sense of fairness here for the people that are actually generating uh, the content that these people are using. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ukraine is here at this summit. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will be talking to leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, about this idea of membership. And what you're going to see here is NATO leaders, again, including Canada. Um, if it's not going to be full membership, what else can NATO do to be closer to Ukraine? Uh, there's going to be the first meeting of what's called the NATO-Ukraine Commission. Again, that's a symbol of NATO and Ukraine coming together. But NATO leaders will also be talking about perhaps some sort of security guarantees. And again, more how more munitions, more material can be provided to Ukraine. So Ukraine wants to be the 33rd member of NATO. It may not happen at this summit, but that doesn't mean that this summit is going to spend a lot of time uh, talking about the war in Ukraine and what it can do to support the Ukrainians. 
That's, uh, of course, uh, Global News uh, Chief Correspondent David Aiken, who's over at the uh, NATO meetings. Uh, and some recent developments about what's happening, is, as David mentioned in his report, uh, President uh, Zelensky is over there and has met with uh, uh, President Biden, the Prime Minister Trudeau, and a number of other people uh, to try to... Uh, I guess, create a path going forward for Ukraine. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Professor Oral Brown. Professor Brown is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. It was a very frustrated uh, President Zelensky yesterday uh, when it became pretty obvious that uh, that uh, Ukraine was not going to be accepted into NATO, at least at this meeting anyway. Uh, he called the timetable that uh, NATO had set absurd at the time. Uh, I'm getting the sense from some of the, uh, the feedback we're hearing from the, the meetings that have gone on today, Professor, that uh, they have assuaged some of those concerns. What, what's your opinion and what's your read on and what's happened today? The frustration of President Zelensky really was boiling over yesterday. And um, he is keenly aware of the fact of the advice that he was given by the UK Defense Secretary, who said, you know, the West is not Amazon, and we need to see gratitude for all the help that uh, you've been given. And uh, Ukraine is extremely grateful for the help that Ukraine has been provided with by the West. It could not have survived uh, this long without that help, but is also very much aware of the shortcomings of that help. And what Zelensky was basically conveying was the following message, that, look, while the Biden administration is dawdling, Ukrainians are dying. That help which has been given Ukraine has come always a day late, a month late, and perhaps even a year late. You remember how the Biden administration was opposed to providing tanks, Western tanks, to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They were opposed to providing the old MiG-29s from uh, Poland and East European states. Uh, the Biden administration was opposed to providing longer range uh, artillery at first. They were opposed to providing uh, Patriot missiles. They were opposed to providing the uh, uh, F-16 fighters. Eventually, the Biden administration caved in and all of these were provided, but after Ukraine already lost much of the momentum. In September, Ukraine was on the winning side. They were moving very quickly. They had liberated over 3,000 square kilometers of Ukrainian territory, but they needed those weapons. And the Biden administration uh, has uh, tried to avoid leadership. Germany looks to the U.S. for leadership, and the Biden administration seemingly has looked to Germany to try to find an excuse not to lead. You remember that uh, uh, sad episode where Germany and the uh, United States were kind of blaming each other for not providing tanks, where finally the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said, look, if you don't provide tanks, we won't. And Biden caved in and decided that he would provide a couple of dozen um, uh, M1A tanks. Uh, and then Germany decided, well, we will follow with enough cover to provide uh, Leopard tanks. And this is what Ukraine has had to face. And President Zelensky cannot speak openly about his frustrations because uh, he is very dependent on the West. But when he said NATO, he wants a NATO that does not hesitate, basically the message put more bluntly would have been NATO, get a backbone. 
the the crux of the message from President Biden, I'm starting to hear it from other NATO leaders at this meeting too, Professor, is that yes, Ukraine, you're going to be allowed in. Don't worry about that. We don't know when, but the the condition, the number one condition, they're saying is not until the war's over. Uh, and and uh, that's that's got to be awfully frustrating, I would think, for Zelensky at this stage, uh, because. You know, well, there's an argument to be made that one of the reasons Russia invaded, or one of the the pretexts they used for that, is that NATO was growing and wanted to, to invade Russia, and and you know, too many people are being allowed into NATO these days. Uh, it's it, the war has to end at some point, but is one of the conditions of ending the war going to be that well, you can't allow Ukraine into NATO? I mean, I just wonder if that's a, a, a solid argument on behalf of the NATO members here right now, or is that just a, a wishful, uh, you know, platitude that they're going to throw at Zelensky to try to settle things down? At one level, there is a perfectly reasonable argument to be made that Ukraine cannot enter NATO right now, and President Zelensky accepts that because this is a very hot, very large, very live war. And if Ukraine became a member immediately of NATO, then Article 5 would apply, and NATO would then have to supply troops right now to fight Russia within the territory of Ukraine because that's where Russian forces are. Hundreds of thousands of Russians uh russian troops are occupying parts of ukraine but as the war progresses to keep saying that we are not going to uh allow ukraine in until the war ends if we deconstruct that doesn't it not mean that basically russia would have a veto because what incentive would russia have to end the war they can keep ukraine out of uh nato even by having some kind of low intensity conflict all too often it seems that president biden and remember this is a person who had advised president zelensky to flee to evacuate mm-hmm. when president zelensky had the memorable retort i'm not looking for a ride i'm looking for ammunition he's still looking for ammunition he's not getting enough he's getting cluster bombs instead of uh, the 155 millimeter shells that the biden administration and the Europeans have not been able to manufacture in large enough numbers. And so um, what a timeline would mean that Russia would not have that veto. The Russia would not be able to use even low-intensity warfare to keep Ukraine out of the alliance. And that has not been offered. So all sorts of substitutes have been offered. And at the same time, President Biden has unwittingly, I think, uh, often just a living, has function as an echo chamber for Vladimir Putin's threats that if you provide Ukraine with more, it could mean World War III. How often have we heard that? Well, again, we have to deconstruct that. A nuclear power like Russia has to be taken seriously. Caution is in order, but caution is not the same thing as timidity or fecklessness or absence of real leadership. And would Putin want World War III? Is he some kind of fanatical theologian who believes that the most important rewards come in afterlife? On the contrary, he is someone, when you see him on television, who wears $400 Brioni shirts, who wears, when he exercises, a $2,500 Loro Piano cashmere and silk tracksuit, a person whose suits are custom-made from specially woven wool that comes from New Zealand, who lives in the most lavish circumstances, this is not a leader who is suicidal, who would like to uh, stay in power, even if it means 
that uh, there could be a nuclear holocaust. That is not Vladimir Putin. The threats that he has made can be countered. And unless the West is willing to do that, unless the West is willing to take a chance, a kind of leap into the future, then it may be that Mr. Putin will have a veto, even though Mr. Biden and the West said they will never allow that. Well, they have to, at some point, the West, they have to take a risk because there's a risk no matter what they do, that they do by not uh, having a timeline. That is a risk as well. Well, simply because of what we've seen happen over the last little while, uh, and kind of lost in the headlines here, of course, is is the fact that Turkey has dropped their opposition uh, to uh, to the the Nordic uh, countries uh, to, and their uh, uh, admission into NATO as well. But that's got to be a factor in this too, I would think, though, wasn't it, Professor? I mean, Putin's looking at that and saying, you know, if if we allow two more countries in there, uh, that weakens our position vis-a-vis his long-term goal, which we know is to basically to to reconstruct the USSR. And uh, what is the implication of that? Uh, he made very dire threats when the two neutral Nordic states decided that they would reverse policy dramatically and join NATO. Mr. Putin made the most dire threats, none of which he could or would carry out. And so this kind of notion that he will really then go to war, he will really be nasty to Ukraine. He has thrown everything possible at Ukraine. He has used maximum force, short of nuclear weapons. What is it that he has shown any restraint with? He's bombing hospitals, civilians. He is indiscriminately sending uh, caliber and other missiles onto Kiev and Odessa. Uh, so what is it exactly left? What is his credibility? So this kind of notion that there's some red line and that uh, if the West crosses that, that will really make Mr. Putin angry, misses the fact that Mr. Putin just wants to stay in power domestically and an all-out war would end his power domestically. A nuclear war would end him and his family as well. And he wants to live. He's not suicidal. And so nuclear deterrence worked during the Cold War when we dealt with the Soviet Union. And this is a remnant of an empire uh, led by a thuggish leader who is closer to ruling in terms of organized crime than some kind of sophisticated uh, social science decision-making system. And so we have to understand the balance of risks rather than just keep repeating these lines of it's going to be the Third World War, and it's going to be a nuclear war, all of which we sensibly wish to avoid. But Vladimir Putin has manipulated us. He's played on those fears, and he has uh, done that successful in the past. And the question is, will he be allowed to continue with that? Because every single day that the West does not provide Ukraine with the help that it asked for, uh, Ukrainians are paying a terrible price in uh, in lives. And we have seen that all those weapons that the Biden administration had said would provoke or possibly risk third world war did not. The enlargement that have taken place so far did not bring about the third war or world war. And so is it that uh, Russia would be allowed to keep conjuring this threat that future enlargement, whether it comes to Moldova, or whether it comes to uh, a state in in the Balkans, again, would bring about the the Third World War, 
Will that be something that will determine NATO policy? I mean, certainly officially NATO says that they will never allow that. Well, then why could they not? And this is a question that uh, the uh, Ukrainians are asking. Why were they not given a timeline? I, a lot of hugs and handshakes over the meeting this morning, but against there's still a great deal of angst, uh, an undercurrent of it anyway. Professor, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That's a Professor Arnold Brown, of course, from the University of Toronto and the Monk School of Global Affairs. Uh, we'll keep an eye on what's going to be developing, especially later today with some of those uh, face-to-face meetings with Zelensky and some of the other NATO leaders. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Bank of Canada announced uh, just uh, moments ago, of course, that it's raising its key overnight interest rate by a quarter percentage point, up to 5% right now. Uh, the announcement was accompanied by uh, the bank's uh, latest monetary policy report, which is a quarterly look at the state of the Canadian economy. Uh, we'll talk about that, too, with our next guest. Uh, Marvin Ryder joins us, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, I, we're not surprised, I guess, or shocked, but well, maybe we're shocked, but certainly not surprised by this. Uh, there almost seems to be a, a split, though, as to whether or not this is the best policy to, to be following, given uh, some of the collateral damage that's being caused by higher interest rates. What's your read on what's happening? Right. Am I shocked? No, but I was hoping, I was one of the minority that was hoping that we were going to have a hold on interest rates. In my story, I think the Bank of Canada has done enough to bring inflation down to its knees. But from the Bank of Canada's perspective, the next chance it gets to do something happens after Labor Day. That's two months from now. And I think they were worried that if, if they did need to pump the brakes one more time, Waiting two months was too long, so better to do it now, get it out of the system, and then sit back and see. If they have overshot the mark, then they can start talking about maybe at Christmas time or early in 2024 about bringing the rates down. And, and again, just so you know why it's sort of a 50-50 proposition, uh, yes, core inflation down to 3.4% in May. We don't have the June data yet, but it could be lower still. But while that's core inflation, there are other kinds of things like food inflation still running way too high. Uh, they also take a look at the United States. Now, today, the United States announced its inflation for the month of June down to 3%, 3.0%. That's great news. Still too high, but moving in the right direction. But then within that, if you take a look at some of the other things, their numbers are running higher. So I think the Bank of Canada said, look, if we get a chance, let's take it now, and then we can sit back and coast probably for the rest of the year. I think this is the last interest rate hike we'll see in 2023. But if, if one of the d- driving factors is, <clears throat> excuse me, as you say, is food inflation, we can't really control that, can we? Well, no, not completely. But what, what they're looking at is they're looking at other economies in the world. Are they bringing inflation down? At what rate are they bringing it down? There's a concern that the rest of the world hasn't done enough. So look, let's pump the brakes one more time. Now, we will be seeing a Canadian-made fruits and vegetables entering the system. Uh, we've already seen, for instance, Canadian strawberries hit the system, raspberries are hitting, the fruit will come over the course of the rest of the summer. That should bring some downward pressure on the, the cost of inflation. So I, I just think you're right, we can't control it all. The only stick they've got are these interest rates, but I think their mind was let's do it today and then we can coast for the rest of the year. So are we, uh, as consumers, are we paying attention? Are we behaving ourselves? No. The short answer, again, is no. Now, look, uh, what does behaving ourselves mean? 
the bank of Canada doesn't care whether you go out and buy yourself a cup of coffee in the morning or have lunch with some friends. What they're concerned about is you borrowing money to buy things. And what they're trying to do is to get you to think about the cost of borrowing. If you're thinking of buying a new car, buying a boat, buying a house, buying some new appliances. And again, if you have to replace your car, if you have to upgrade your house, go ahead and do it. But just for those people who are thinking, well, let me hop into the market. No, don't hop into the market. Do us all a favor. Sit back and wait for six months. And there are some signs that people are starting to get the message, but not doing it in big enough numbers. Again, it's one of those things, Bill, that if we would act collectively for the collective good, but instead what we tend to do is say, well, that's good. That's a good rule for everybody else, but not me. So again, this little reminder, this little shot over the bar, another quarter percent interest hike. Are you sure this is when you want to borrow the money? But what's this going to do to to businesses that are that are looking for that? Uh, we've talked in the last couple of weeks, Marvin, uh, you and I, about well, construction business, for instance. I, you know, we're supposed to be building houses because uh, we've got a housing crisis. Uh, yet the people that are supposed to be building them are telling me and telling you that uh, cost of materials is too high, and the cost of borrowing money to to to, to build houses is too high right now. So we're, we're going to hit the pause button. That's that's not helping us. Yeah, so let me come at that two ways, Bill, if I can. First, you're absolutely right. Raising interest rates is itself inflationary and can cause inflation. Now, the thinking, again, was this was going to be a temporary big jump in these interest rates and that the story in 2024 will be these rates coming down. But for the moment, they are causing some inflation. For instance, if you're somebody who has a variable rate mortgage, your cost of carrying that mortgage has gone up by 29%. That's very inflationary. On the other hand, uh, the people building homes sort of talk out of both sides of their mouths. While it is true their cost of borrowing is higher and and, uh, the cost of financing the new home construction is higher, that's a true statement. But at the same time, we actually have seen housing starts go up tremendously so far in 2023 and lots of new housing being constructed at the moment. So I'm not sure what the impact of just a quarter percent interest rate hike is going to be, especially if this is the last one. Again, I think we can get through this. We can muddle through this somehow and get ourselves to the other side. Okay. Explain to us again, because I always get emails about this every time this happens, which is, well, a couple of times over the last couple of months anyway. Why do the banks have to respond so quickly to this? I mean, you know that they're raising their rates as you and I are speaking now. It's only a quarter point. Uh, Can the banks just hit the pause button or do they have to follow suit here? Well, they're going to follow suit here for this reason. The banks make money on the spread between what they loan it to people, but also what they pay depositors. Now, I realize that many of your listeners uh, uh, are, are struggling with their mortgages, but another chunk of your listeners are seniors, and they take their pools of money, that whatever they've been able to save, and they go to the bank, and oftentimes they buy a guaranteed investment certificate. I was in some banks this week, and there were big billboards up everywhere put your money into a GIC, get 4%, 4.5%, 5% guaranteed for two years, three years, four years. They haven't seen interest rates like this for nearly a decade. And seniors are quite thrilled. Now, as, as the cost of borrowing goes up, though, so do the cost of these deposits. And it's the spread that the bank makes their money on. None of this is designed to make the banks richer, although I'm sure their profits will be just fine, thank you but it is designed on the spread. So there is good news for some people in our economy. Those people who are trying to save money, they can get more money, whether you're a retired person or you're just trying to build up your 
TFSA or your RRSP. Yeah, but the other side of that coin, though, excuse the bad metaphor here, uh, is that they're very quick to raise rates on, on borrowing if I want to borrow money. But if I've got investments, as you say, GICs or, or lifts or whatever, uh, they kind of drag their heels on raising those rates, too. They do raise them, but to, not to the same extent. But I guess uh, that falls under that guise of what you were just talking about, about profit margin. I mean, they, it's not a charity that they're running. Right. You know, but amazingly, Bill, they do tend to move them almost as quickly uh, because I now am an age <laughs> in my <laughs> 60s where people think I have extra money. I do get these kind of announcements and I am amazed at just how fast they're raising the cost of a deposit or the amount I can earn on a deposit almost as fast as they are the others. So they aren't that sticky. These things are happening almost automatically. But again, it's a quarter point. I don't think it's going to make a huge amount of difference. But let me just say this, if you are an individual and you are struggling or you're finding it hard, perhaps with a variable rate mortgage, my advice remains the same. Immediately go see your bank. The bank does not want to foreclose on your home. The bank does not want to kick you out on the street. The bank has tools to help you get through this period, but they can only use them if you go early. If you wait until the last possible moment, you handicap the bank and they will not be able to help you. They can be your friend. I realize, I realize again, <laughs> they're raising interest rates. That doesn't seem very friendly, but they do have tools to help you, especially, by the way, if you're carrying some of that high interest rate debt on things like credit cards. Boy, there's all kinds of things they can do to help you get through this. Uh, well, that's on my to-do list for 12.05 right after I finish the show today. Uh, talk is, uh, mortgages are going to be a major problem, I think, for an awful lot of people these days. Uh, Marvin, thanks for jumping on today. Give us uh, some uh, some insight into this. Really appreciate it. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder, a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. And and I, I get what he's saying, and he, he makes absolute sense, and it's it's a legitimate approach to this whole thing. But it's just, you know, the other side of that coin is as consumers – uh, we're looking, you know, please, when is this going to end? Uh, and apparently not anytime soon, at least till after Labor Day anyway. So uh, we'll continue uh, to follow just uh, what is going to happen vis-a-vis -vis the implications of this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.